This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcasts at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hello, welcome to Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen. I'm here with Lynn today, and today we have a special guest who I'm excited to introduce to you. His name is Peter Boyle. We've been friends for quite a while, a couple years now, and I thought that he would make an interesting guest because in our time together, we often talk about a lot of things related to males and misogyny and the culture that we live in, and I thought he would have some great perspectives to share with you today. So welcome, Peter. Hello, thank you for having me. You're welcome. And Lynn, of course, is here as well. Well, Peter, I'm really excited because you've spent some time in the military and you have a perspective really on men in the military and particularly sexual issues. So we're not going to ask you all of that at once, but we'd really like to hear some of your opinions about that. And then Jen also told me that you know about a group of men who are defining themselves as involuntarily celibate or incels, and uh, they're sometimes termed. And uh, I'm curious uh, about that group. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting area, and they're kind of an area that has a negative view toward women. Um, maybe you could start out telling us a little bit about what that group is and letting uh, uh, the listener out there know really about it. So uh, incels termed themselves involuntarily celibate. It's not a label anyone else gave them. Primarily, they're just on internet chat groups or on forums like Reddit, mostly Reddit and, and spinoffs of Reddit. And basically, they consider themselves involuntarily celibate because they feel like they've never had sex or never will again. So hopeless virgins would be kind of another term. But their primary characteristic is being very, very, very angry for whatever reason, mostly because they view sex as this great prize that they were denied. Not, not that they, and not that they should earn, but they were denied. It's a entitlement entitlement to just Mm -hmm. being alive, essentially. So. There's a lot to say about them, uh, and I don't want to go on too long with the initial question. Listening to what you have to say, even this much, it, it says to me that uh, they assume that sexual intercourse, and I'm guessing it's sexual intercourse, should naturally be given to them or be part of their lives, and uh, that you're saying that they don't really have to work for it or engage in a relationship for it. They feel like they already have worked for it. Can you explain that? So uh-huh. in that when, when they see other men be successful sexually or in a relationship, they ask, what haven't I done that's similar? I'm nice. I'm respectful mm-hmm. or whatever definition that is. They believe themselves to have already done the 
appropriate actions to receive sex. Like it's just uh, an algorithm you can follow. So <laughs> if I do this, then this happens. If I do this, then this happens. If I am nice to women, I should have sex because that's how it works. Uh -huh. uh, re regardless of being nice is just a regular thing. Like, like saying thank you or please <laughs> right. or treating someone not bad, not, not even exceptionally good. Uh, yeah. Or, being kind of spineless in a way and doing mm -hmm. everything for someone with this goal in mind. Oh, so so in, instead of acting in a way that represents, say, some attractive trait like mm -hmm. independence or, or decisiveness, they'll act in a way that they think will get them sex. Uh-huh. And they, where does the relationship aspect fit into this, if at all? Or is it just seen as a, you know, kind of a quid pro quo? I'll do this and I'll get back this and then I'll do this and I'll get them yeah. to the next step kind of thing. The relationship is seen as the means to sex. Okay. Not, not as, not okay. as a, a thing in itself. Okay. So that's part of it too. Like sex is everything. It's an obsession. It's the end goal. Uh-huh. And so you would say this group of men for the large part, and you told me earlier some women are involved yeah. in this too. And they're largely rejected by the greater community because the idea is women don't have to work for sex. So how can a woman be involuntarily selfish? Uh -huh. That's what I was going to say is if you could bring up some of those sort of core beliefs that a lot of incels may share. Because I know that, you know, they, they do have that kind of identity that they've given themselves. And there are some, I don't know if core principles is like the right words, but they have these core beliefs. A core, a couple of the core beliefs is that sex should be given in that algorithmic way because that's what they think they're seeing. Another one is a, is a pretty strong core belief of worthlessness in themselves, obviously because they're not achieving this goal of sex that everyone else seems to be. So you think that contributes to kind of the anger? Because I know what struck me the most about this group, you know, I don't know that much about it, but is that there's so much anger particularly directed towards women, and they often write posts that are like very violent or sexually violent and very aggressive. What was the question? Do you think that the whole like worthlessness plays into, you know, as a way to sort of combat that or like overcome that or? Yes. Yeah, uh, definitely. The, the, the anger comes from a feeling of great weakness in the world and inability to control it. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, other people can do these things. Why can't I? I have no control in this arena. And this arena is the most important one that they've seen so far. Mm -hmm. Um one of the people that incels, some incels have celebrated in the more crazy ones, I guess. Sure, the more extreme. The, the more maybe. extreme, not crazy. <laughs> uh -huh. The more extreme was um, Elliot Rogers, yeah. the 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 guy who went on that murderous rampage in Santa Barbara. He was an incel. Mm -hmm. That's actually um, where I first learned the term. Is it yeah, like all his videos, his he mentions it. And if you read his, his manifesto and then you go read like the incel subreddit or forums, they're basically identical. And I think that's terrifying. Yeah, this is an extreme version, really, of an incel. Because, you know, we talked a little <clears throat> bit earlier and I've had one or two in my practice yeah. come in and they're very angry with women. Yeah. They feel entitled to having sex and they're envious of other men yes. who are having 
regular sex. Or thinking, who they think are having it. Or they think it's good point, Peter. Good point. Because they imagine all other men who are yeah. with women partners are having yeah. this type of sexual activity. So, and, and he is in a, like a very extreme example, but that those same emotions drove him to do what he did. Uh, wh- whatever restraint that he overcame and, and threw away, that same mindset, the same anger and hate is present throughout incels. Mm-hmm. That, that is one of their defining features. That makes like that makes it such a toxic community. Mm-hmm. One of the groups we work with here a lot are parents, and I'm wondering if parents have a son or a daughter, but more likely a son, who's defined himself in this way. And let's say a parent finds out about it. You know, they go online, or the son leaves some printed out material, and there they see it. What would you suggest for, uh, <laughs> if anything, that a parent do at that point? To for the son? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Honestly, kind of tell him that what you're feeling is pretty normal, okay. to be honest. Okay. As, as, a, as someone who was a teenage boy at, for <laughs> like eight years. At least years, years ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's not super uncommon because you really, really, really want to have sex uh-huh. as, as a teenage boy. Yes. Um, and so then you go online and you read stories or you, you watch porn or whatever, or you even just read in like books, fantasy mm-hmm. novels. And there's, there's play always, video games. you play video games. There's always this kind of undercurrent that the popular kids or the successful kids mm-hmm. in high school are having tons of sex all the time. Mm-hmm. So like if people, if two people leave for 15 or 20 or 30 minutes, well, there's only one thing they could be doing, uh, <laughs> even though that's pretty unlikely. Like yeah. that, that does happen to some extent, but it's not literally all the time. And so teenage boys, though, they'll, they'll get it into their heads that that is what's happening and they're missing out on it. And the only logical conclusion that you can really come to is if you're missing out on it and you try to get in and you fail is that there's something wrong with you or with them if there's nothing wrong with you. So you can, you can deflect it to some extent. And so for teenage boys, if you found out that your son was into this, and was very angry in this way mm-hmm. would be kind of asking like what about what about failing at this means that you're kind of like why do you feel worthless mm-hmm. about yeah. failing at this or why does it take away your self-esteem yeah. or your good feelings and, and to it, see this yeah and mostly comes down to self-esteem one of the mm-hmm. tricks that my sister played on me <laughs> was that she just asked me like say three good things about yourself mm-hmm. that's it just three mm-hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be some deep thing, mm-hmm. right? And I couldn't do it. I was like 16 at the time, and I literally could not do wow. it. Wow. And that's a very good tip for parents, because at least it gets you, the, your child started thinking of good things. Yeah. Maybe they can't come up with them, and then the parent might suggest one or two or yeah. a direction that the, the teen can go yeah. with that. At, at yeah. least for mine, I came up with plenty, because people have yeah. given me compliments before I didn't believe them or whatever. Uh-huh. And uh, upon thinking of them, the, the reaction I had was to say, like, no, that's almost I don't want that to be true. Because oh. my, my self-conception for so long at that point had been like, like, this is just how it is. Like, this is who I am sort of uh-huh. a thing oh, that I to try to change it. Like, that's not like even if you have a negative self-image, trying to change your self-image is it's work. It's work. And it's hard 
and it has the cognitive dissonance that goes on in your head as you're trying to change it. So that that would kind of be my advice is try to figure out not why they feel entitled. They feel entitled because like everyone else seems to be having it. And if I'm as good as them, then I should be too. But more to figure out why they just feel so crappy mm-hmm. about themselves. What I see, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to yeah. reflect mm-hmm. on that. What I see a lot too is that there's often with, with entitled people, whether it be, you know, we're talking about males here, but obviously there are other entitled people in other ways, is I often see there's kind of this entitled victim flip where there isn't sort of a middle ground where, you know, maybe this happened for these reasons, but it's really like either everybody's against me or like I'm owed everything. Is that something that you see kind of being around men more? Not more, but it definitely happens, especially with the everyone is against me thing, partially because men aren't socialized in the same way, so they don't reach out. And it's very easy to become reclusive when you're in a crisis. And if you become reclusive in a crisis, it becomes very difficult to believe other people care <laughs> because now they're forced to have to break through your resistance. And if they do it, that means they care. And if they don't, that means they don't actually care mm-hmm. to you. The, That's the perspective that yeah, yeah, um, somebody in that state would have. Yeah. And this brings us back to friends and family. How do you reach out to somebody with that mindset? You know, and you have to reach out to them because they've already defined that people don't care about them yeah. in a way. It's a tough group, I think. And a lot of parents face it, I think, with young men and some with young women. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you said that uh, men aren't the only entitled group out there because we see entitled women in our practices, oh, too. Absolutely. And often women expect maybe not sex as an entitlement, but they do expect a relationship and certain constructs and in certain uh, dependency that they'll be involved in. Yeah. The big thing I see is that a lot of women kind of expect their partner to be mind readers, which I think is very interesting. I think when I talk with a lot of my male friends about that, it's very frustrating because they talk about, well, they do want to be good in relationships and they do want to be able to kind of provide and be responsive. But it's very hard to be responsive when you don't actually know what the other person wants or what they're saying. Or what their history is. That was one of the... So I don't know why I did this. But I boomboxed girl in high school. So like mm-hmm. took a boombox to mm-hmm. her house and played it on the lawn. Sort of a thing. Like that movie. Um, What's that movie? Yeah, there are a couple of movies. It yeah. sounds There's like the Romeo. Romeo. <laughs> the famous one. Yeah, it worked. yeah. I, I did it with a buddy of mine. Uh-huh. And he did it to one of his ex-girlfriends. And it yeah. worked. Oh, wow. Like she called him and said it was very sweet that he did that. But mine called the cops. So and, oh, and when I told my dad that, he asked me, do you know what she's angry about in her life? Uh-huh. Because if you don't if you don't know what somebody's hurt by, uh-huh. what what's hurt them in their life, you don't know them right. in a relationship context. You don't know what's going to set them off. They yeah. don't know what's going to set them off when you do it. Right. And so that that was kind of the thing with the mind reading uh-huh. is you should know that this thing would have hurt me because of this thing that happened in my past. But you've never talked about that. Your dad asked a, a really important question. He got you thinking what the other person is thinking. Yeah. It was an yeah. question. Yeah. yeah. And that's important. How do you try to put yourself in the mind of the other person that you're having this relationship with or want to have yeah. this relationship with? 
So that, that was important because I didn't think of it in that context at all. Like, well, you were thinking about like, this is very romantic. I saw it in a movie. I imagine, right? Like, oh, this will win them over. I, I asked a couple of her friends if it was a good Mm -hmm. idea. And they were like, yeah, she'll be totally into that. And no, she was totally not. Yeah. I mean, I think it also brings up though, like some, some women or girls would hear that and be like, oh, that is so romantic. It's just like the movies, you know, how wonderful. And other people are going to be like, no, like this is, crazy. This is terrifying. I don't like this. And you kind of, if you don't know the person that well, you really don't know how they're going to react. Yeah. What happened, Peter, with that? I'm curious, did the cops come and you're there playing your boom box uh, on the lawn or how did that go? No, another of a mutual friend of ours was like, it it was, they were, they were um, staying the night and she called me and said, you need to leave. Ah, she cued you in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's what did it. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that was very dumb. And looking back on it now, it's really easy to see how kind of just, it was creepy. Mm-hmm. It was honestly. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think it was at the time at all. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was one of the harder things to really learn is when you take actions like that. And, and this is part of the entitlement too, yeah. like mm-hmm. to make sure to remember that there is another person on the other side and very likely they have problems in the same way you do. Mm-hmm. So if somebody had come to my house unannounced after mm-hmm. a week of me ignoring their calls or texts, I would have been pissed, mm-hmm. but I didn't think about it like that. Right. And that was the thing. Like now looking back, even just the next week. The, the week after I did it, looking yeah. back at me like, oh, yeah, she totally ignored all this stuff. There was a very clear message here <laughs> yes. that I was refusing yes. to see. Mm-hmm. And that was that was part of it. And I think that's an important part of, uh, you know, relationships, whether they're uh, gay relationships or straight relationships, is really paying attention to the cues back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to add on to that a little bit is in terms of the cues, I think it's so important. I'm glad you highlighted that because I think there are a lot of women, particularly teen girls that I work with, that will give cues, but they won't be able to vocalize something. So, you know, maybe a guy very persistently keeps asking them out and they will, you know, turn to another friend or say they're busy or, you know, they have a hair appointment or like things that suddenly become pretty obvious. Like I just want to say no, but don't feel I can. Mm -hmm. And when I work with a lot of my boy clients and they share these stories, like they're very oblivious to all these signals. They're like, okay, but she never said no. Do you? Well, that that happened to me. Yeah. Uh, I asked Mm -hmm. a girl out as a freshman and she said, no, I have this thing on Friday night or whatever. And I was like, okay, you know, uh, maybe ask me next week. And I asked her the next week and she said the same thing. And when she said the same thing twice in a row, that's when I was like, okay, she just doesn't want to. That's, mm-hmm. So it would have been nice. I, I we, we became friends a couple of years later and I asked her, why didn't you just tell me no? And yeah, she said, I didn't know how, like, I didn't feel like I could say no mm-hmm. uh, outwardly, like refuse you that directly. Like it would hurt you too much, I guess. That, 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 that yeah. she felt responsible for my feelings, even though we literally didn't know each other. Like we had been in the same classes a couple of times, but we didn't talk extensively. It was very, 
You just thought uh, she was attractive. Sure. Yeah, yeah, she was super cute. And, but that was it. Mm-hmm. And so, but she still felt compelled to take care of my feelings. Which gave you the wrong cue the first week, actually. She's taking right. care of your feelings and not saying directly, yeah. no, Peter, we really don't know each other yeah. well enough, which would have helped you greatly, probably. Yeah. If she had yeah. just been like, no, I'm sorry, that's not what I want to do. And it would have been like, right. well, all right, that sucks, but all right. Yeah, you would have taken it immediately, probably, or better than well, you getting an excuse. Signal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And for me, it wasn't too bad. Like, I, I wasn't, like, heartbroken or anything or even right. super disappointed. It was just like, well, you know, mm-hmm. all right. But for other guys, yeah, they don't get it. Or if you're emotionally involved or engaging in motivated reasoning about it, mm-hmm. you'll ignore those cues because she didn't say no. Mm-hmm. And even then, for, for a lot of guys, at least, you're told, even if they say no, keep trying, because maybe they're playing hard to get. Oh. This is a myth that I think is is really out there and affects, uh, you know, the yeah. assaults that yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jen and I work with assaults. a lot. Yeah, exactly. Maybe say more about what that myth is, about how women are playing hard to get when they don't go with, you know, they cue you differently, and yeah. where you might think that has come from. So the clearest explanation I've ever seen of it was actually in a book by Neil Strauss called The Game, which was his memoir essentially of going into the pickup community and becoming a pickup artist. And in the in the book, like the, the view of these men who outright just go out to pick up to women. pick up women, uh, is that women play hard to get because society negatively or views women that want to have sex negatively. And so even if a woman wants to have sex, she's socially compelled to refuse. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't look like a slut. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the whole, that's the whole reason, at least as far as this group was concerned. And this is a myth uh, that Jenna and I hear in our offices all the time, yeah. really. So it's a kind of recurrent myth. Yeah. But I think still a lot of teenage girls don't understand that. And even women don't understand that that myth is really out there and that men might be approaching them with that, even though they might be revealing some of that behavior. You know, there is a group yeah. who I think does yeah. play hard to get because yes. they do feel they'll be slut-shamed yeah. because of their activity, you, you, that kind of thing. Yeah, because that definitely happens. Women are definitely slut-shamed mm-hmm. yeah. all the time, even if they're not doing having sex sexual. or doing yeah. anything sexual. It's just an immediate insult that gets thrown out because it's effective. Yeah. No, it's a, so they're trying to avoid that. But on the other hand, I think a lot of women want to give clearer signals around uh, sex yeah. and intercourse and all yeah. of those things. But that's dangerous for women, too. Like there's there's plenty, plenty of stories that I've read that I have no reason to disbelieve. And from talking to my my friends who are women is that if you are overly, not even aggressive, but kind of overly blunt in saying no, then the guy can potentially get incredibly insulted. And an insulted, drunk guy in gets a bar angry and violent. Gets, can get angry and violent. At, at best, it's completely uncertain of what's going to happen. And so, yeah, maybe you said no, and then maybe you get a drink thrown on you or get hit or something or get uh, harassed the whole night from that on. 
How would you suggest women react at that point? Maybe they're getting, they've had a, a drunken evening leading up to this. Uh, they get uh, the requests maybe thinly disguised or not disguised at all. And they're worried about the response they might get. What should they do? Call the bartender when they tell him, have him referee or? That, yeah, like make that, that as unfortunate mm-hmm. it is, as it mm-hmm. is, make sure the interaction is happening in the sight of someone else. It's good. Um, good point. With, with some yeah. kind of authority mm-hmm. or that that's another reason to go out with friends that a lot of women like yeah. don't like going to bars alone mm-hmm. is because it ups your chances for that kind of thing. The biggest uh, rapes, uh, the n- largest number of rapes that I've had reported and in the studies really indicate when you leave with the man, you leave mm-hmm. the bar or the other setting or the group setting mm-hmm. and you're alone either outside or you return to one of the two or three right. places of residence. Yeah. And then they often occur in that sequence. Yeah. So I think your point, keeping, you know, in the group setting, recognizing that this is not going a good direction. Yeah. You know, the cues that really lead to aggressive activity have to be picked up. Yeah, and that's hard to do in a bar or a loud club or even at a house party because there's so much going on. Yeah. And one of the strategies we had in the military because sexual assault in the military is a big deal is is honestly look out for your shipmates. Uh, Make sure you're not too drunk and make sure they're not too drunk. It was very, very big on kind of a – it could easily be seen as victim blaming in a way, but it was more of the idea of – these are strategies you can use to try to keep yourself as safe as possible while still being able to go out. Mm-hmm. Because obviously the the end of that kind of strategy is never going out and just staying in your house and being terrified all the time. Right. Um, Which is and not enough. that's not healthy Both or good. People. But it, it does become that kind of thing where if you're going to a bar with friends to just pay attention to each other and look out for each other. And for the most part, I think that happens. Uh, with my group of friends, it seems to happen. So it, it's hard to say exactly. Because I, I haven't knowingly seen that kind of scenario take place. With your experience in the military, um, and you were in for a number of years, so you had a, a group experience, but um, they're aware of assaults, the military, because yes. they've had now 20 years of you know, uh, women recruits more actively involved in different divisions and a lot of issues going on. How much assault prevention do they do or does it happen with your buddies kind of looking out for each other? There's quite a bit of at least assault prevention training. Uh, We think it was yearly. We had to have our sexual assault training and it's it's this little interactive thing online. And then every couple years you have to go to an in-person class thing Mm -hmm. for a couple hours which is a lot more than most places I've heard about as far as actual training. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that they teach you? Because, I mean, it's primarily a group of men. Is that correct? Yeah. So what is it that they teach a group of men about sexual assault? One of the things is to pay attention to what the other person is saying or what they're doing as a guy. So, like, say as a guy you're mildly buzzed or just mildly drunk and the the woman you're interested in has been drinking the same amount as you but since they're smaller and possibly not as much of an alcoholic as you are in the military Mm -hmm. they will be pretty drunk and as the 
aggressor in that situation, you would be called on to stop. Like now it's your responsibility. Like maybe there's not a clear cut way to say like, oh, you, you definitely did this even though you were both drunk. And the military, the morality still kind of goes like, come on, we don't don't try to lawyer your way out of this. We know what happened mm-hmm. sort of a thing. Even if there's no hard proof, it, it's much more along the lines of, you know what you did. You know what you were intending. Don't argue with it. Hmm. Just accept the responsibility of controlling yourself. Would you say that's like a culture, like a military cultural kind of thing? Or is it more just within like the close knit groups? Because I find, you know, sort of top down, there's a lot of reports about like lieutenants who maybe are abusing a subordinate. I don't even know if that's the right word. But you know, like, so I, what do you make of like that part of the culture? It is a broader cultural thing. And even those lieutenants or captains or majors or regardless, whatever your branch yeah. uh, and your rank, abusing subordinates, you can espouse those values um, while still breaking them. Like you could still truly right. believe in them, but right. you just kind of are an awful person and don't live up to it. And you bring up, Peter, the role that substances, alcohol and other substances play in assault, sexual assault. Yeah. And it's a big one. So yeah. I think it's good. There's this education that's required. But in practice, it often falls short, you know, oh, and yeah. that's that's where we get the large number of assaults from that we're really coping with. Especially in the military. It's it's there's a lot of alcohol on military bases and just at military functions. And so it becomes very easy to be able to miss. Like maybe if you were to, to miss the signs or the, mm-hmm. the, the signals, maybe if you were sober, you wouldn't have had this problem. You, you would have recognized like, no, that person is way too drunk. Mm-hmm. I, this is, this is not okay. But uh, your own perception is altered. Yeah. But you're, you're already kind of screwed up and you might not notice anymore, or you might be more willing to not notice sort of a thing. And you already brought up, or we've already discussed, that myths exist, and the woman may be thinking, I don't want to upset him, I don't want to be clearly saying no at this point, because it could aggravate him. So you have this interface where acts can occur, even though people might have good intentions prior to it. Yeah, like they're not necessarily, that, that was one of the harder things for me to learn, and it came through a personal experience where I really scared a friend of mine mm-hmm. without meaning to, like mm-hmm. I was really drunk mm-hmm. and we, I didn't do anything, but it was terrifying for her. Mm-hmm. And after that, my friend group basically confronted me about it. Mm-hmm. And I, cause I, I truly did not know. I thought the night went fine. Mm-hmm. And my roommate came home and he was incredibly angry at me. Mm-hmm. And from there it became this clear thing. It's like, you don't, have to try to hurt people to hurt them, especially mm-hmm. when you're already drunk. Mm-hmm. So, and that wasn't even like, I, it wasn't a sexual thing at all. It was just this terrifying thing for her. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty eye opening. And that's one of the things is it's easy to miss these otherwise clear signals if you are also intoxicated. It's really, I think, hard for young people because, uh, I, there's so much anxiety around hooking up, dating, meeting, you know, partners yeah. that alcohol and substances, substances have become yeah. part of it. They've always 
been there. Yeah. You know, but uh, I, what you're saying about the military is they really perform a big role there. They're really actively used in yeah. calming people down. Yeah. No, definitely. The military uses alcohol to a very, very large degree to cope. Okay. And that explains how some of these events can happen. I think about the first uh, eruption years ago uh, in Airborne when they showed these parties and there were the first sexual harassment allegations that Mm -hmm. were in the press because obviously they've been there before. But it was alarming, I think, to think about these parties, so much alcohol and so much possibility for misinterpretation. Yeah, there's the misinterpretation, and the, and then there's also just the underlying misogyny of military culture that ha- <clears throat> that happens, especially with the more combat-oriented groups. Mm-hmm. So the, the resistance, say, to women being on the front lines in the military has been they don't belong there, mm-hmm. they're too weak, they, they just can't hack it in a general sense. And so to have women going there, even though it's officially sanctioned, the culture isn't different yet. Mm -hmm. And that attitude will still exist. And those women who go and they do want to, the, those that feel like it's an important thing to do, they will have to work twice as hard for half as much Mm -hmm. respect basically. Mm -hmm. And that's women are familiar with. Yeah. and, And that's where it becomes very, very difficult is you already have this kind of undercurrent of hostility and so then when you throw in alcohol, it's no longer just about missing signals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why do you think that the misogyny is an undercurrent in the military? I have my own ideas about it, Peter, but you have a lot of experience day to day being there. And I think that's true. And uh, from my experience with my patients who come out of Airborne and some of the other divisions, they've had a lot more trouble, the women patients. They've had to struggle. They've had to fight off harassment. And they don't think they're very liked, you know. Yeah, it's it's hard to say exactly what it is. Part of it, I think, is that since the military is such a conservative culture, we all have our we all have our place. And mm-hmm. for a woman to be in this place that was traditionally masculine is not right, basically. It's seen as not it's right. It's seen as not right. And so that's that's mm-hmm. a large part of it is you're just you don't you're you're out of your role. This isn't your role. You don't belong here. And that's mm-hmm. that can lead up to just outright hostility because those roles are integral to that person's identity. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if you're here as a woman doing this thing and I'm here as a man doing the same thing, that means that's no longer a defining feature for me as a man. I think that's very important that men feel like they're losing their role or it's being encroached upon by women being there and they're angry about that. You know, and there's also, I think, an assumption that the male role is more defined on top in some ways. And there's a struggle around that. That's hard, I think, for people to accept, really. One of the things that I think makes a difference, too, just to kind of bring some positive here, is I've noticed that, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed that among, like, our group of friends and among some of your friends, is as a male who has more of an open mind and more of a kind of psych-minded and observant um, way of looking at things. You've shared perspectives with other males that maybe have heard some of these perspectives from their female friends, but they don't believe them in a way that, like, if you share with them, you know, because you're kind of also a male, therefore 
you must have these same ideas as them. And when you kind of counter it, sorry, this is kind of rambly. I'm not quite <laughs> sure how to put this into words, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and, and some of that comes from just the idea of people who you see as similar to you, looking similar or whatever, whatever group yeah. tribal identity thing. You can trust them more because since they look similar to you, they must have kind of the same mind, right? So you can kind of guess at their motivations and they can guess at yours. And so you feel like you could trust them more because they're not trying to trick you. They're, they're not trying to get anything from you about this. And then it's also just challenging deeply held beliefs of whatever they are. Maybe you haven't thought about them really or haven't thought about them with this perspective. So that, that's, that's definitely a big reason why men talking to men about some of these things is very effective because it's not like you're trying to get them to treat women better because it helps you personally. Right. So if, uh-huh. if, if a woman is asking to be treated better from a man that benefits them directly in the sense that they're now treated as a human, uh, which <laughs> <Yeah>. is very, <laughs> right. very good. Um, but if another man is telling you, Hey, what you're doing is wrong or what you're doing is kind of messed up because they're, people too, I don't know if you noticed, then it, it brings up like, oh, why am I doing that? Like what what are the actual perspectives? So they I'm don't feel as attacked or as kind yeah. of yeah, put upon. Yeah. I think you're also talking about uh, people treating each other as uh, more similar, looking for similarities. And yeah. that's so important. Yeah. There's such alienation particularly of men and women in today's world. You know, it's aggravated by our political situation. Yeah. And we're really looking for ways we can communicate better across genders. Yeah. To, to bring this back to incels, that, yeah. that as a teenage boy, I didn't think of teenage girls as people. Okay. I did not see them as okay. being on the same wavelength as me at all. They yeah. either had no problems or they had completely different kinds of problems. Yeah. Um, and that was pretty hard to get over in a way. I didn't, I didn't really, really get over it until one of my younger cousins when she was 15, like I would call her just to talk and like talk about her future and everything. Cause she was thinking about going into the military and she described her problems and they were literally the exact same problems that I had had as a teenage boy for the most part. And that's when it was really, really hit that mm-hmm. like, I didn't think that these problems existed for teenage girls. Like, it wasn't something I had ever considered. It, mm-hmm. if, if somebody had told me, I would have said, yes, of course, obviously. But I didn't really think it. Like, I didn't really believe it. And for incels, that seems to be the case as well. And for gen- general misogyny, that seems to be the case is seeing women as actual people. Not just saying, like, well, yeah, of course, they're people, they're humans, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But actually seeing them on the same level as you with similar problems and similar fears and similar hopes and all that. And what you're bringing up is really that that friendship with your cousin. Yeah. Where she could share things, you could identify with her. Yeah. And I think what's sad about uh, particularly American sexual culture is there is a great divide between boys and girls in teenage years, and it affects everything. I think younger children, there's less of that. But by the teen years, the split is great. Yeah. And that's when you're starting to have to fill in your role, whatever your yes. role mm-hmm. is pushed on you. Yes. Whatever role is pushed on you, rather. 
Well, I find what's interesting about that, because in elementary school already, a lot of kids are kind of split up. Boys play their boy games, girls play their girl games. I mean, this is a very simplified version, right? Mm -hmm. But like for there's a big splitting. And it's very interesting because it's around the teen years where people start coming together. But it's really often mm -hmm. more in a relationship context. So you sort of go from like, oh, they're so different mm -hmm. from me to like, now I think I might want to date them. Mm -hmm. And I think that brings an interesting kind of perspective in terms of seeing them as an object rather mm -hmm. than kind of as a human with the same problem. And really from two different worlds. Right. You know, so it's a, an interesting right. process. Well, Peter, you have been very helpful. We'd like to have you back sometime. It's been helpful to talk about the military, and I appreciate you talking so openly about it. Uh, you know, we don't hear that experience, really, you yeah. know, in the media very often. So it's very, very valuable. Yeah. You know, and then the your knowledge about the incels and being a teenage boy. I didn't expect that when we had you on today. <laughs> uh, but that's, I think, valuable for everyone. Really to hear that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm so glad because that's one of the things I really enjoy about our friendship is that we can talk about a lot of these things. But I think also for, you know, uh, our listener is that, you know, Lynn and I can talk about these things, but at the end of the day, we're two women sitting here talking about these things. And as you said, you know, if we talk about a culture of misogyny, then it kind of brings up this like, oh, you're women, you just, you know, are being annoying or you just want to see yourself as a victim kind of thing. And I think being able to bring in a lot of different voices and you're our first, you know, male guest, it provides a perspective where everybody can kind of talk about these experiences. Thank you. Thank yeah, you so much. It was nice yeah. to be on. Come on. Let's talk about